This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 50. This is Writing Excuses, world-building finale, making deliberate choices. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Fonda. I'm Mary Robinette. And I'm Howard. And we have been talking about world building for seven weeks now. And now here in the eighth episode, uh, we're very excited to kind of tie this all up with what we hope is a very intelligent bow. Um, What do we mean, Fonda, by making deliberate choices? So what I hope I've done over the course of the eight weeks that we've been talking about world building is encourage listeners to really examine why we world build and how we world build and how it serves the story in ways that are not just, it's cool and fun to world build, but are actually really thoughtful and deliberate. And I have often taught writing classes, workshops, um, at, at different conventions and venues. And sometimes, um, you know, early career writers will submit work, and very frequently I see them fall back on worlds and speculative elements that are um, that are familiar and that are default because we've seen and absorbed them so much before, um, like medieval European analog or uh, magic school, um, fantasy races like elves and orcs, and so on, and. Those are all perfectly fine um, magic worlds, but um, what I really would like to encourage writers to do is to ask yourselves, well, why am I making world building choices and what are those um, speculative elements uh, that I'm including um, because they really reinforce plot and character and theme? And why am I choosing something as opposed to I'm just falling back on something that I've, I feel comfortable with or I've seen other people use before? This is uh, something that I talk about a lot. The idea that a cliche is not bad because it's familiar. It's bad because it's thoughtless. And all of these elements that we see so often repeated like elves and orcs and magic schools and things like that, they're not you know, flawed things you should never put in your story. You just need to make sure you're putting them in for the right reasons that you have. You're not just using them because they're familiar and you don't want to think about it. Yeah, it's that the the metric of, you know, write what feels good. See it, see how it moves you. It's is is useless because not completely useless, but it's <laughs> it's it's uh it's very um wiggly. Uh, wibbly wobbly because frequently something feels good because it's familiar and and when we're talking about right reasons it's again that's a wibbly wobbly thing because different stories have different reasons and and different this is right so there's not it's not as it's not an easy metric to go by so what you want to make sure you're doing is that you're doing it deliberately and with intention and and it's the intentionality that that we've been talking about for the past several weeks. Yeah, I especially want to encourage 
people to think about what time period and what cultural analogs they're choosing to use and why. Um, I earlier on in the masterclass in a in a previous week, I talked about um, the my aesthetic reasons for wanting to write the Greenbone Saga in a um, latter half of the 20th century analog. There was also a thematic reason why I did that because one of the big themes in that series is the the tension between a very um, old culture and tradition with all the forces of modernity and globalization and um, the the conflicts uh, that are inherent there. And so I chose a time period that is uncommon in epic fantasy because it reinforced a theme that I wanted to be at the front and center of the whole trilogy. So just think about like, what is it that you're trying to do with this story that you want to leave with the reader and, and bring that into your, into your world building choices. There's a a thing that we talk about a lot when, when we're talking about a default character and we've talked about this in previous episodes, um, you know, the, the unspoken default uh, and that, uh, in modern day America, at the time that we are recording, that's a that's a thirty year old white man, and people will say, "But why? Why have your character be you know, uh, be I don't know, be a woman? Why? Why? Why can't you just?" And the the question that I I find myself asking is like, "I'll I'll go ahead and and put down whatever my defaults are, and then I'll go back and interrogate them, and that also includes where I'm setting it." So. You know, why am I setting it here? What does that buy me? Because I'm going to be spending a lot to build this place, spending a lot of words. So what am I buying with that? And is there a reason that I'm doing it here? Sometimes that reason is this is a place that I'm comfortable and I'm going to be doing something more challenging in some other part of the novel. That's that's not a, a r- ridiculous reason to set something someplace that you're familiar, especially if you don't enjoy research. Um, but it it is a deliberate choice at that point. You're you're making it on purpose instead of just falling into it by accident. Now, one of the things to be aware of as well with the defaults, um, the the defaults, the cliches, the tropetastic elements, whatever those may be, um, is that they it's kitchen sink effect. They don't all fit. You, if you put you know, all of the things that you love from, you know, various Western-themed fantasy stories into one story and then begin exploring the implications of any of them, actually being thoughtful about them, they will crowd some of the other ones out. You, they, they, it doesn't all work together. And it's one of the reasons why uh, highly derivative stuff feels so flat because it feels like, oh, you just painted a, you know, a a Disney version of Tolkien uh, as a backdrop for characters to act against. And the, the dragons would be eating the sheep. You know, this doesn't make sense. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm, I'm going to pause, pause here, for... here to talk about the book of the week because yes. it, it's actually right on point for this. Um, it's Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse. Uh, and it's um, it's inspired by pre-Columbian Americas. Uh, and it's it it is at its heart an epic fantasy full of the kind of political machinations and prophecies that you you get from other epic fantasies. But she's made deliberate choices to pull from a different mold, from a different palette uh, than than most of the epic fantasies that you read, and because of that. She's got access to all of these different um, different areas, different intersections of politics and culture that's just rich and thematically gives these additional layers that um, so she's she's buying a lot. It's not just, oh, cool, this is a, this is a different setting. That's neat. Thematically, narratively, there's so much richness to this world. And she's able to, um, she's doing one of the things that we talked about in a previous episode by having her POV characters come from very different worlds um, and and different cultures. And some of them are outsider characters. I think actually all of her POV characters are outsider characters in one way or another. Uh, you're able to get this really broad, rich, just gloriously textured landscape that the characters are moving across. And it's 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 a beautiful book. It's one of the Hugo finalists this year. Um, and as we record this, it's it's still just a finalist. Um, but who uh, it's so good. I would not be at all surprised to see this one uh walk home with the with the rocket ship. Cool. That is Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse. Now Fonda, let's get back to something that you mentioned earlier. You talked about making deliberate choices about what kinds of real-world cultural analogs to, you know, that that may or may not show up in your in your story and in your world building. So let's talk about that a little bit without getting into a, a massive discussion of appropriation. Let's just set a baseline, do your research and, and be respectful. Talk about this idea of real-world cultural analogs. Yeah, um, one of the choices that I I want all writers to consider is how much, when you're creating your world, how much are you importing from the real world versus um, building uh, from the ground up? And and maybe I can illustrate this best with the example of this term Asian fantasy. So my my books, The Green Bone Saga, often get described as Asian fantasy, which is a term. Um, that I can I can understand the usefulness of this term from a marketing perspective, but I am not fond of it because it, it it's used as an umbrella uh, term to encompass a lot of things uh, that are potentially very different, completely different types of stories. Um, and uh, and as an example, um, let, let me contrast a few books. Uh, there is a a new novel, um, She Who Became the Sun, by Shelley Parker Chan. And it is a um, story set in uh, ancient China, and it is based on a real historical figure, um, the founder of the Ming Dynasty. 
And it um, obviously changes some things about our real history by um, reimagining the identity of this very real person. So that is, uh, that is borrowing a lot from our real world um, and, and uh, then, then telling a story within it. Um, then you have uh, The Wolf of Orin Yarrow by K.S. Veloso, um, which is set in a secondary world that is very reminiscent of the Philippines. Um, Kay is, uh, is from the Philippines and, uh, and the story is a secondary world that is like if the Philippines had not been colonized. And so you have um, very strong cultural cues, including what the characters eat, the way they dress, uh, that, um, that, say that this is, this is, uh, inspired by the Philippines. And, um, on the other hand, you have, uh, my series, the Greenbone Saga, which is in a secondary world that is not based on any one specific Asian nation. And, um, because I wanted, um, the story to be in a place where there was a, this magic element and it was this isolated, um, a culture that was on an island. Um, and so the fact that there is magic jade would have influenced their entire development. It could not simply be Japan or Taiwan, you know, with the serial numbers rubbed off, like it had to be its own thing. And so that influenced my world building choices. And I made really deliberate decisions when I was writing the story, not to use words that tied it to specific places. I never use uh, adobo or sushi or uh, or uh, dim sum. Like I never use words that would make you think that this is based on a specific place. So there, that's an example of three books that fall from a marketing standpoint under the same term, but have made very different world building choices in service of different narratives. And are going to appeal to very different audiences. When I think of uh, when I think of world building, I'm often and and cliches. I I often force myself to question the the boundary states that I've created around given terms. Like the, and the example I'll use here: What does it mean when a place is crowded? You know, my house has I think 2,500 square feet, and there's five people living in it. And there are people who would say that that's crowded. But I've spent some time reading up on and looking at pictures of uh, Kowloon Free City, um, which was in, the, in, this, in this area between two political entities. And, and it was essentially uh, 60,000 people or 40,000 people living in a space the size of a... the, the footprint of a football stadium, that was crowded. It was literally one of the most crowded places on earth. And, uh, and I looked at that and realized, okay, the boundaries that I've got in my mind for crowded are light years away from that, whatever that is. Um, and I perform these interrogations anytime I'm creating something to make sure that I haven't used a word like crowded to mean something that it doesn't really mean. 
Mm-hmm. Now, um, as we talk about making these deliberate choices, whether they are for narrative or aesthetic or thematic reasons, we don't want to lose the idea that your world building should still be cool, that there should still be awesome stuff that makes us want to love that book or wish we could live there. So how can we do that? Fonda, give us some homework along yeah. these lines. Yeah, um, I, to, to, to your point, I want to kind of bring the whole masterclass back around to like, well, why why do world building? And, and we've talked this entire time around how it should support your narrative, your plot, your characters. It all should work together seamlessly and be, you know, this perfectly balanced three-legged stool. Um, but uh, it, it, I want to come back to the fact that many of us world build because it's really fun. And um, when you are a novelist uh, and you're going to devote years um, to a project and spend so much time in this world, you need, there needs to be something about it that is so compelling to you that you'd rather spend time in this fictional world in, in front of your computer than, than out in the real one. Um, and so I often ask um, you know, uh, writing students, what are your armored bears? And um, I'm, I, I point them to um, Philip Pullman's Dark Materials series. Right, that is a series that uh, has really meaty themes. I mean, it is interrogating organized religion and oppression and some pretty meaty stuff. Uh, but what do we? What is on the cover of the of the book? What is on the movie poster? It's the armored bear because armored bears are just really freaking cool. <laughs> and so that that is my cool theory of literature that um, you got all this awesome world building that ideally just supports your narrative and does so much heavy lifting and is, is meaty and rich and nuanced and full of texture. But there is, there has to be that kernel of cool that just draws your reader in, draws you in and keeps you there. So my homework for, for the week to close out this masterclass is I want you to consider for your own work, what is your armored bear? What element of the story you're writing right now makes you most excited to world build and why? Sounds good. We would, at least I would, love to hear what some of you come up with. This is a really great uh, way to end this. So thank you, Fonda, so much. This has been an absolutely wonderful uh, masterclass. I've learned a lot, and I hope that the listeners have as well. Um, so you are out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts were Dan Wells, Fonda Lee, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. To learn more about Writing Excuses, visit patreon.com forward slash writing excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them. 
And I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.